such monstrous forces of evil in the form of the Roman government, but to have their foes painted so vividly before their eyes must have been unsettling even for them. So what do you think they needed to hear in the 14th chapter? How about the assurance of victory? Well, that's exactly what they got. And they got it in the form of three special visions given to John. Visions of a song, a warning, and a harvest. Let's see if we can't find assurances in those visions as well. The 14th chapter of Revelation, verses 1 through 5. John is writing. He says, And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. After seeing the dragon thrown to earth, a beast rise from the sea and another from the earth. I'm certain even John was relieved to now see the Lamb, the risen Lamb of God, standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 around him. Now, we're not told the location of Mount Zion in this vision. Some suggest it's a picture of heaven. While others believe it's a picture of something taking place on earth or a renewed earth. From the other details of the vision, particularly the fact that the voice John hears comes from heaven as differentiated from Mount Zion, I tend to believe this is a scene of activity on a renewed earth. Mount Zion is generally used in Scripture to represent the seat of the Messianic kingdom. And I think this vision projects ahead to the time when the church will be fellowshipping with Christ on a renewed earth, cleansed and restored as the paradise of God. But whatever its location, this is without a doubt a picture of Christ and the church. The 144,000 we've already seen represent the totality of the church. And here they are pictured as those who have the name of the Lamb and His Father written on their foreheads, not the name or number of the beast. They're the church, sealed and marked as belonging to Christ. And here they stand in victory on Mount Zion, even after the dragon and his allies have tried so desperately to destroy them. 
This is a picture of victory for the children of God. A picture that is accompanied by song. For John hears a voice from heaven. A voice like the sound of many waters. A sound like the sound of thunder. Like the sound of Greg Buchanan playing his harp. Whose voice it is, we're not told. But it appears to be the voice of an angelic host. And they sang a new song before the throne of heaven and the four living creatures and the 24 elders who surround the throne. They were singing a song that was most likely a song of victory, a song of redemption, for no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth, who had been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So apparently the redeemed of the earth joined the heavenly hosts in singing a song of victory. But then again, who were these redeemed of the earth? Something that is said makes us pause a moment. John identifies them by first saying they are the ones who have not been defiled by women. Those who have kept themselves chaste. Now, what that means has been debated for centuries. Some suggest that John is promoting the celibate lifestyle here. And that instead of representing the entire church, here the 144,000 represents only those who have taken vows of celibacy. I find no good reason to change the identity of the 144,000. And certainly a man is not defiled by taking a wife. Others take the passage to simply be a, a reference to spiritual purity, faithfulness, to God, and I think that comes closer to the truth than the first suggestion. However, it may even be better to take a step beyond a general picture of spiritual purity here. John may be giving examples of how one's faithfulness to God can be seen and identified. Now, sexual license was rampant in Roman society and accepted as normal by the masses, kind of like today. So the Christian stand for moral purity and faithfulness to one's spouse would indeed be an identifiable mark of the redeemed. They could be also identified by their unwavering commitment to following the Lamb wherever he went, out of gratitude for their redemption, Christians committed their lives to serving Christ, and his will took precedence over their will. They were consecrated to God as the first fruits of the harvest had been in ancient Israel. They were not their own, for they had been bought with a price. And as a result of their belonging to Christ, they fearlessly spoke the truth, and they lived lives that were above reproach. These were the redeemed who stood in victory with the lamb on Mount Zion in John's vision. And they confidently sang a song of victory and redemption even before the dragon and his allies were pictured in defeat. And such can be our confidence. And we can join in their song if we too can be identified 
as redeemed. If the marks of purity, honesty, and personal commitment to Christ can be seen in our lives. The next vision of assurance came to John in the form of three angelic messages and a voice from heaven that mingled the Christian promise with a most specific warning. Let's read on. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Now, in the face of threats and warnings from the beast of the earth, I'm sure these warnings and assurances from the angels of God were a great relief to the Christians in John's day. You know, can't you hear the Christians' neighbors and friends and family pleading with them to go ahead and, and do what the state demanded? Burn the incense. Say Caesar is Lord and get the mark or certificate that would enable them to provide for their family in a pagan society. Can't you hear them saying that Rome is too big to fight? When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, in this vision, John gives the Christians what they needed to be able to answer those who might plead with them to give up their faith. The first angel that appeared came declaring the eternal, unchangeable gospel. Declaring that all men are going to be judged by the God who created them and therefore must fear Him, must respect Him as God and worship Him and Him alone. The gospel, or good news aspect of this message, is that such worship is now possible 
because of the risen Lamb. You know, just hearing this message again would reassure the Christians. Sometimes we begin to feel that we are the ones who are mistaken because we are in the minority. But hearing again the proclamation of God that applies to every nation and tribe and tongue and people gives us the assurance we need to stand for the truth. We've heard the eternal gospel. God has spoken. We can stand firm on that. We just need to hear it again and be reminded of the source of truth. Not be intimidated into silence. A second angel that appeared, declaring, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, there's a little question as to Babylon's identity. Peter actually referred to Rome as Babylon in his first letter. And as ancient Babylon had exercised a powerful and ruinous rule over the nations, getting them to drink the wine of her immorality, so was Rome doing in John's day. So when the second angel declared the fall of Babylon, he was actually declaring the fall of Rome. The seemingly invincible Rome was going to fall, as will any modern-day Babylons. That was indeed an assuring note for the Christians to hear. The awesome beast that they were facing was doomed. And as the next angel declared, so were all who identified themselves with the beast. The third angel declared that all who worship the beast and receive his mark on their forehead or hand are doomed to share the fate of the beast. Those who drink the wine of Babylon's immorality will also drink full strength, the wine of the wrath of God. They'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb forever. Endeavor. Now, we're not surprised by the fact that those who rebel against God and then refuse to repent and accept his offer of forgiveness will be in eternal torment. But it does seem strange to hear that they will be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. It almost sounds as if the angels and Christ himself are going to watch the spectacle of hell. And that they're going to delight in the torment of unrepentant sinners. Now, that just doesn't seem right. And I don't think it is. This scene can very easily be one of the tormented viewing the angels and Christ. Not the angels and Christ viewing the tormented. This makes more sense. To be tormented forever would be bad enough. But to be able to see a reign of joy and peace 
just out of your reach for all eternity, knowing it could have been yours, would bring unthinkable anguish and remorse. And that's the doom of those who worship the beast. And that is certainly a motivating factor for the saints to maintain perseverance, to keep the commandments of God, and to hold faithfully to their commitment to Christ as their only Lord. And then as a positive reinforcement to faithfulness, John hears a voice from heaven instructing him to write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now that's not saying those who died in the Lord before this were written weren't blessed. It's just affirming the promise to those who were alive and needed to hear it. They needed to be assured that rest from their struggles was coming. And then to once again assure the Christians that the end of their struggles was near and that God was going to deal with those who caused them so much pain in life, John is given a vision of the final harvest. Verses 14 through 20. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called the loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. This vision of the harvest is actually given in two pictures. First, we see one like a son of man sitting on a cloud and wearing a golden crown harvest the grain. And then we see an angel harvest the grapes. Now there's considerable debate as to the significance of these two pictures. Some maintain that the first picture shows Christ coming to harvest the wheat, to take the Christians to himself. And the second picture shows an angel coming to reap those who are condemned. The text, however, does not say that the first is a picture of Christians 
being taken to the reward. And there is, in fact, good reason for believing both pictures show the harvest of the wicked. In Joel 3.13, when prophesying God's judgment on the nations, Joel said God would one day declare, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now there, both images, the harvest of grain and of grapes, picture God's judgment on the wicked. Another reason for rejecting the idea that the first picture shows Christ taking away Christians before judgment is passed on the wicked, is that contrary to popular opinion, the scriptures make it plain that the wicked will be taken first. I know this flies in the face of those who believe in the secret rapture of the church. You may have even seen a bumper sticker that says something to the effect, warning, in case of rapture, this vehicle will be unmanned. That's a reflection of a very popular belief, one taught in the Left Behind novels that says Christians will be snatched away before the real tribulation comes. And those who teach such usually refer to Matthew 24, 40 and 41, where we read of two men being in the field when Christ returns. One, it says, will be taken, and one will be left. The same is said of two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. The assumption is that the one taken is taken to glory and the one left will have to face either the tribulation or judgment, depending on whether the teacher believes the rapture comes before or after the tribulation. But if you look at the preceding verse, you discover that the taking away is being compared to those who were taken away by the flood in Noah's day. Those who were taken away in judgment. The picture is one of unbelievers being taken away to judgment before Christians rise to meet the Lord in the air. This is further confirmed by the fact that the parable of the tares among the wheat in Matthew 13 teaches that the Son of Man will send forth angels to gather up the tares, the weeds, and cast them into the furnace of fire before the wheat is gathered into his barn. So it's probably best to understand both of the pictures of the harvest in Revelation 14 as pictures of judgment. In the first picture, Christ is shown ready to reap the earth. And as soon as word comes from the Father, carried by an angel from the heavenly temple, Christ swings his sickle and the earth is reaped. The second picture focuses on the judgmental nature of the harvest. It shows an angel as an agent of Christ swinging his sickle 
gathering the grapes and throwing them into the winepress of the wrath of God. The angel from the altar is probably shown to make it clear that this judgment is the final answer to the prayers of the saints that have been pictured back in chapter 8. Prayers for God to act and thereby vindicate himself in the testimony of those who died for the faith. The magnitude of God's judgment is pictured by a horrible scene where the juice of the grapes is seen as a flood of blood as deep as the horse's bridles and spreading for 1,600 stadia. Now, the New American Standard loses the symbolism of 1,600 stadia by converting it to an American equivalent of 200 miles. 1,600 was most likely used as a symbol to show that God's judgment is worldwide. As we've already noted, the number four was the ancient symbol for the earth. Four times four, four squared, and then multiplied by a hundred could very well emphasize the worldwide nature of God's final harvest. So what we have here in the 14th chapter of Revelation, while no doubt frightening to those outside of Christ, to those who sell out to the dragon and his allies, is a message of assurance to those who remain faithful to Christ and an encouragement for those on the borderline to remain faithful. So what about you this morning? Reading that chapter can be really scary. I don't mean to give you nightmares. But does it frighten you? Or does it give you assurance? Do chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Revelation frighten you or give you the assurance of victory? It can do either. And it depends on your relationship to Christ. Now, Satan and his allies are out to get you. That's not a paranoid statement. It's a statement of fact. We are in spiritual warfare. Satan and his allies are out to get you. But Christ guarantees your victory. If you stay faithful to him and to the church. These visions were given in the hopes that they would motivate you to do whatever you need to do to affirm your faith in Christ and your commitment to his church. If you need to do something this morning to find assurance made possible in these pictures from Revelation, I pray that you'll do it. I pray that these images that are presented so vividly will draw you to a Savior who guarantees victory 
over evil. I trust you have eyes to see evil all around you. Christ simply gave John pictures of it to impress upon us how frightening these things would be were it not for the grace of God. It's my prayer that if you need to gain the assurance of victory, that you'll respond to the invitation. You'll say yes and make Jesus Lord of your life. You'll, you'll bury the old self in a, in, in a grave of baptism and rise a new person in Christ, washed clean and given the assurance that you're acceptable to God and that all the forces of heaven will now be on your side because you've chosen to be on the side of Christ. This is a decision that has to be made on a personal basis. It doesn't just automatically come by attending church. When we gather to study, you need to hear the word proclaimed. And by hearing the word, you should get faith in the person of Christ. You should understand the reality of life. And then with the prompting of his spirit, you should be motivated to do what needs to be done. To be made right with God. And be able to face judgment, not with fear, but with confidence. We've been offered a blessed assurance in the midst of some pretty frightening things. It's my prayer that you've embraced that assurance. If you have any question about what you need to do, come see me. Come forward. Come see me afterwards. Call one of the elders. Please, don't let these visions just drift off. Let them motivate you to action. If action is needed. The assurance can be yours. I pray that it is.